Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Julia Joja and I am joined today by my colleagues. Dalibor Rohaj from AEI. And? Giselle Donnelly, also from AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're joined by Mason Clark, um, lead Russia analyst at the Institute for the Study of War. Um, Mason, I want to just go straight to you and ask you, since um, you were last with us Friday, a lot has happened. Can you talk us through what has changed? Absolutely. And thank you all. It's a pleasure to be back on the podcast. So, The key development over the weekend is actually that Russian forces largely paused for about 48 hours on Saturday and Sunday. As we previously talked on Friday, the Russian invasion to date has been, frankly, not what we anticipated in terms of the quality of Russian uh, performance and advances. They've made a lot of bad decisions in terms of uh, committing small units piecemeal, unsupported by artillery or aircraft or even logistics, and many of their main advances actually as I said, paused for a day or two for them to bring up reinforcements and various uh, logistics, supplies, fuel, that sort of thing. There's been a lot of reports that Russian units have burned through their gasoline and diesel reserves far quicker than they anticipated and quite literally ran out of gas on several lines of advance. So we didn't actually see any major Russian movements in the fighting around Kiev uh, in northern Ukraine over the weekend. And only limited advances through northeastern Ukraine uh, as forces between the cities of Chernihiv and Kharkiv uh, move forward on a broad front. However, very unfortunately and terribly, um, just overnight in this morning on the 28th, Russian forces have begun increasingly fighting into downtown Kharkiv using greater rocket artillery um, and shelling civilian areas, inflicting a lot of heavy casualties um, that as I said, unfortunately, is likely what we are going to see more of in the coming days as Russian forces retool their strategy and use the heavy firepower that they have so far neglected to use, likely because they falsely anticipated a very quick victory in Ukrainian capitulation to fight into these major cities. Um, We're also seeing limited movements in eastern Ukraine around Donbass. Russian forces encircled the key port city of Mariupol over the weekend, that we have not yet seen major assaults into that city. Um, and Russian forces might, rather than trying to actually reduce it, just keep seek to keep Ukrainian forces in place so they can't uh, redeploy westwards to fight uh, Russian forces around Kiev. The most dangerous Russian line of advance is still uh, their pushes north from Crimea. Those appear to be the best resourced and best trained Russian troops that are participating in the fighting so far. And they're moving out in several directions, both north towards the city of Zaporozhye, as well as west uh, through Kherson and towards Mykolaiv, um, and eventually likely onwards to the western Ukrainian city of Odessa. So those were the key military movements on the ground over the weekend, relatively static compared to the first couple days of the war as Russian forces paused. Um, And of course, Ukrainian forces continue to put up a very spirited defense, um, halting several Russian attacks. Now, of course, two big changes that we're seeing uh, is in the air campaign and in possible Belarusian involvement in the war, both of which will be dangerous as we get later into the week. 
Russian forces still haven't secured air superiority over Ukraine, but we're seeing them commit greater assets to targeting Ukrainian air bases and most importantly, logistics center in centers in Western Ukraine, which they previously haven't targeted as much. We think that they're likely going to try and sever the land transport routes of all of the U.S. and European aid shipments that are wonderfully going into Western Ukraine to resupply Ukrainian forces, supply them with fighter jets and many other forms of military aid. So we'll be watching that crucially in coming days. Second, unfortunately, we think it's very likely that Belarusian forces are going to overtly enter the war within the next 48 hours. Um, Putin and Belarusian President Lukashenko discussed further Belarusian involvement in the war, and we're seeing a lot of indicators and reports of Belarusian airborne forces assembling for a possible combat drop or a direct offensive into Western Ukraine. Now, it remains to be seen exactly how effective those forces will be. The Belarusian military is not the Russian military, and the Russian military hasn't even been performing that well. Um, so I don't want to say, you know, it's entirely doom and gloom. They're going to sever Western Ukraine or anything like that. Um, but that's likely going to be a renewed Russian or now Belarusian line of advance, uh, probably in the next 48 hours, I would say. Can I ask you about um, the developments in and around Kiev? So over the weekend, um, there was a report uh, of, of Kiev being encircled, which supposedly came from a mirror copy of the Instagram account of of the city's mayor and, and was later sort of Pushed, pushed back on uh, what, what, what is exactly happening and and, and, and what, what is your expectation about uh, where the fight for Kiev might be might be going next? Sure and that actually is a very interesting example of what uh, we're starting to observe as for lack of a better term sort of the information space around the war, the war has deteriorated in the last couple of days and more misinformation and overt disinformation like that has come out of exactly the Kiev mayor reportedly saying that the city is completely encircled and then having to go on his own telegram account to go no 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 that's not true at all that wasn't me we still have ways into the city um russian forces are still advancing into northern kiev on both sides of the Dnipro river um still primarily with light forces such as airborne troops unsupported infantry again very mind-boggling in terms of the deficiencies in these Russian advances. They have not been committing the heavy armor and firepower that they, quote-unquote, should under Russian military doctrine, um, and that may be coming up soon. We do think that the Russians are most likely going to try a wider offensive west of Kiev to completely encircle the city. So they've been largely paused uh, in the area around the Chernobyl exclusion zone and a little bit south of that for the last few days, but we're seeing them commit additional armor and supplies for a wider encirclement campaign uh, that they may seek to roughly in the next 72 hours, cut off Kiev from the West. Remains to be seen how effective that is. I do think, unfortunately, if they really do commit their reserves and air power, they'll be able to push through Ukrainian defenses. But as of now, the city is not cut off. And very, very crucially, these Russian pauses and delays have given Ukrainian troops now two or three days to really reinforce the city um, and we're seeing reports of very well built out uh, defensive structures, trenches, anti-tank traps being established uh, to fight off any Russian attackers. If I could, again, just pick at the, the, the Kiev and the uh, more generally at the issue of uh, what the Russians will have to do to, to really penetrate the city in force. Um, two, two things have struck me over 
the course of the last couple of days. Um, one you alluded to, uh, the beginning of a sort of Grozny-like uh, artillery siege of the city. There was some interesting, um, although kind of um, uh, smoke uh, obscured and, you know, cell phone level uh, video of what appeared to be, you know, artillery rounds dispensing small sub munitions, um, uh, which is, you know, dramatic and frightening, but uh, not necessarily all that effective to well-built structures. Um, and then secondly, one of the real deficiencies of the Russian operation thus far is the coordination between heavier forces and the infantry they carry. So it, it seems to me the Russians are kind of caught in the horns of a, a dilemma uh, being forced to use uh, lighter, more elite forces for this because they're the only units that have even remote, remotely enough cohesion to operate in that, uh, you know, very chaotic environment, and and the reluctance of you know, the dismounts to get out of the BMPs and BTRs and stuff like that, uh, really leaves them uh, with very, you know, very few choices uh, about you know, if resistance in the cities continues. The Russians are going to have to make an even greater sacrifice in order to to penetrate. So I'm just yeah. interested in you, what you're seeing that either supports that or refutes that or corrects it. No, absolutely. I think it's it's a almost a twofold problem leading to the same effects for the Russians of these uncommitted light forces going in. Uh, I think a lot of these main thrusts were carried out by Russian airborne forces, um, fast-moving reconnaissance forces. Uh, sort of an interesting quirk of the Russian military is that um, their reconnaissance battalions are considered very, very elite, not just intended for intelligence gathering, but as fighters as well. So that's a lot of the units we've seen moving ahead. Um, and I think they've been part of sort of these initial assaults and charges because, again, uh, the Russian military was just wrong and expected the Ukrainian military to collapse under just that little pressure of, okay, if, if we just get a minor recon element into the city center, that's it, we've got it, which of course has not turned out to be the case. But also, as you're saying, there's been really big deficiencies in command and control coordination um, that we think uh, is likely because all of these Russian forces have been pulled from across uh, Russia's four military districts and concentrated on Ukraine, and they may not have had the time to develop cohesive structures and uh, allowing units to talk to each other. There's been a number of weird scattered instances of, for example, a, uh, a unit of Chechen uh, Rosgardia troops, which is sort of the Russian National Guard, conducted an absolutely unsupported attack across a bridge towards Kiev and were decimated by Ukrainian defenders. It seemed as if they weren't even talking to the Russian armored forces that were just nearby. Um, and a lot of reports are still coming out of Russian soldiers surrendering to Ukrainian troops and openly stating that they had no idea they were about to go into an, an invasion. They don't know where they are. They don't have clear guidance, that sort of thing. That just points to wider failures in the quality of Russian preparation for these operations that are, you know, leading to what should have been preventable setbacks on the Russian side. 
Um, maybe we can segue a little bit to the supply side. You sort of alluded to the fact that you're tracking, um, you're tracking um, Western supplies coming into Ukraine. And before we get into how that can be cut off and what risks that um, that entails for um, for the Ukrainians, maybe we can focus just a bit on on just what is happening on the European side. Um, Dalibor, I know you you follow this as closely as I do. Um, all of us do actually. But I just want to say one thing from kind of the political side. I think it's safe to say that we've never seen Europe move so quickly. Um, and so resolutely in terms of political messaging, we can talk about sanctions another time, how effective they are or they aren't, um, but um, also in terms of uh, military and security support. Um, the messages and, and social media over the weekend have been exploding um, with, uh, with you know, declarations of solidarity, with um, shipments, uh, with um, even uh, news of, of uh, European volunteers um, who are joining Ukraine. But the question that I have from all of this is how uh, much um, is what the Europeans offering um, useful to the Ukrainians and how effective are we on the European and on the American side to actually get those shipments out to the Ukrainians into Kyiv and other key cities? So if I can just react to that quickly, um, I certainly want to echo this 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 point that what we've seen over the past couple of days is is really unprecedented. Like we've sort of witnessed history in the making in in, in Europe in a way like we haven't in a, in a very very long time. I wrote a piece last week for the New York Post shortly after the invasion where I said look, the next couple of days will show whether the West has what it takes to confront Russia. And I included a fairly maximalist list of proposals of like things that I would like to see announced or put in practice by the end of the week. And although what has happened, you know, doesn't come 100% towards, you know, all these sort of bullet items I presented, it comes pretty close. Like I, it would never really occur to me, like even in my sort of most optimistic expectations that, that the EU would would be acting so quickly and so so decisively. So so that is certainly I mean a, a, a sort of extraordinary moment we are we are living through. Are um, we yeah, are we seeing the hour of Europe finally? However, there no. was... <laughs> I mean it look, it is all great and it's certainly very cheering and it, it bodes very well for the post Ukraine whatever. Um, but, and, and some of the things that are being sent, like the, the combat aircraft are great because, you know, Ukrainian pilots and others airplanes, they can just like hop in and, uh, assuming they're in decent working order, um, you know, generate, uh, some sorties to sort of keep their, keep contesting the airspace. I tell you, the one thing I wish that somebody would send, or I wish that we had sent earlier, uh, were armed drones. Some of the most cheering and um, I think most effective um, scenes that I've seen on Twitter are the videos from the Turkish-made drones 
uh, attacking Russian artillery and Russian supply columns. There's one thing, it's just such a perfect drone moment where there's a explosion at the beginning of a supply column and then, a, you know, it's on a long, narrow road and the first munition goes, hits the lead vehicle and the last munition hits the end vehicle. So it's, you know, it's perfect drone tactics. There was another uh, similar video of um, uh, a drone strike on uh, a multiple rocket launcher. Um, if the, you know, it's pretty likely that we've, we're sharing intelligence about where the Russian and the Ukrainians certainly know at this point where the Russian forces are. But that ability to forestall the pace of a Russian onslaught or to mitigate or, you know, make those Russian artillery units, you know, have to move every time they shoot, um, that's something that could really make a difference in, you know, uh, help uh, keep some of these supply lines open and these city bastions uh, viable. Um, the Europeans are giving what they have, and that's, that's great but I'm not sure that what they have is exactly what the Ukrainians most need. Mason, what do you reckon? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, overall, the European supplies have been a amazing boon to the Ukrainian military. Of course, you know, it's easy to grouse of, it would have been great if this arrived in early February and not after the invasion already happened, but it's still been amazing to see. Um, the key thing that I would flag, I agree on drones could definitely be something that would uh, beef up Ukrainian capabilities further. Um, one thing that I we've been worried about watching is, and to be clear, I don't have a, a solid answer on this, is how quickly Ukrainian forces are burning through the munitions that they've been supplied. They've been very widely advertising. We've been getting a lot of videos of, you know, UK and US provided anti-tank guided missiles inflicting really heavy casualties on Russian forces. But we just don't have a good sense of how many of those missiles and how many of those systems Ukrainian forces have. And as this continues to protract, I know it's, you know, it seemed like it's been an eternity the last five days, but we are still, unfortunately, in the early days of this war. I think there's a real risk of, frankly, Russian numbers being able to, in some ways, overcome those munitions. We may start to see a drop off in not even the systems, but just the literal number of missiles that Ukrainian forces have uh, to fight against Russian armored attacks. And so that would likely be something more than, you know, small arms, ammunition, or artillery shells and that sort of thing that I would forecast uh, Europe should probably emphasize uh, and prioritize supplying to the Ukrainian military. I was going to also add a small caveat to my previous peroration about, you know, the EU's getting its act together, namely that it's one thing to, like, live through this sudden outburst of sympathy and, and determination to help Ukraine. And it's quite another to retain that focus once this war goes on for two weeks, three weeks, three months, uh, and it looks like it's some sort of unsatisfying stalemate. Uh, and and, and that, 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 that is what worries me, that... Uh, I mean, you know, it's great to see these sanctions in place and they went far beyond what I expected. Uh, but will we be able to sustain them over the long time? Will we be able also to, you know, continue to provide Ukraine with arms? And will we be also able, if necessary, to somehow escalate if, if Russians, you know, do indeed have recourse to just brute force? Like they can they can go, you know, that 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 is my main fear that like if if we really see 
Kremlin just deciding to brutalize the Ukrainian population through, you know, cluster bombs and these thermobaric weapons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, do we just let that happen, or, or what options do we have other than sort of continuing to do what 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 what, what we are doing? And I think at some point this sort of fatigue will set in. You know, policymakers will have to will want to move on, and 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 I think that's the point at which. Uh, sort of the, the the political options for for Putin expand relative to uh, to the menu of options he's got now. Dalibor, I really think you put your your finger on something. The measures that we've taken can buy time, just to sort of summarize it. Um, but they're not. I I fear they are not war winning efforts. So. You know, we're going to have to think really hard or outsiders are going to have to think very difficult uh, thoughts about whether they're willing, you know, and, and the discussion about the no-fly zones, for example, is, is really a discussion about whether we want to become involved in the war. And we have so far, we have not come close to crossing that threshold, Our, the leaders of Europe and in the White House. Uh, are trying to signal madly that that's not their intent. But, uh, you know, uh, they're wishing for something that they not want to put there. Can you tell us, and maybe we can discuss briefly, because I think that's a question that many of our listeners and people around the world are trying to figure out for themselves and in terms of the responsibility they have and they're trying to um, exercise sort of to to support Ukraine. Um, No-fly zones are um, something discussed. Maybe um, you, you um, Giselle, I know you're about to publish an American Purpose, an article um, exactly on that. Which we'll include in the show notes. That's right. Um, can you talk us briefly through the implications and the risks of that on one side? And can we talk on the other side? Can we balance that out with what is our, or what do we anticipate is our threshold? We've seen someone just said among you cluster bombs. I think we've seen early reports. I don't know if they're confirmed or not um, of cluster bombs in Kharkiv today. Um, What is in, in a, in different scenarios of Grozny 2 and others, what are now with the political situation in the West, our um, red lines, what what will we prepare to have to see? And what do you expect um, uh, to be the red lines where people say, okay, this is enough. We need to step in in a way or another. And then what are the the options that we have engaging from very indirect wars, just supplying weapons to something that is not too risky. <laughs> well, so uh, which at what temperature is the porridge just right? Uh, you're, you're asking. You, uh, you you pick the temperature for now, and then we can do a. Okay. Round. Well, so I would say, look, it, you know, the continued existence of a Zelensky government is darn near the only reasonable definition of victory that, that we can advance. Um, the, and we haven't talked much, and people aren't talking in public very much about what 
the end of the Zelensky government would mean for all this wonderful NATO and EU solidarity uh, over the long over the long haul. I, you get the sense that people are sort of having a adrenaline high because the Ukrainians are doing better than everybody thought they would. Um, but again, I think avoiding the question about whether we're willing to do what it takes to, to really try to preserve the Zelensky government is a question that is not going to get any easier with time. And, we, you know, the pixie dust answers in the form of sanctions or, you know, a no-fly zone. We all think that uh, no-fly zones, uh, as in uh, as in the Balkans and as in northern and southern Iraq uh, through the 1990s, were somehow benign missions. They were not benign missions. I mean, it was easier because uh, Serbian air defenses and uh, Iraqi air defenses uh, were not nearly as good as Russian air defenses would be. Um, so, and, you know, people, I'm sorry for the long answer, but remember how wiggy everybody got when Scott O'Grady was shot down. Um, you know, that put a flutter in many hearts for quite some time. But to just simply to conduct a no-fly zone, you're going to need a lot of airplanes. They don't have to be close because you need constant, uh, as everybody said, Ukraine is big. So, uh, you know, conducting combat air patrols over, uh, you know, the Ukrainian airspace means that we'll have to put a lot of fighters in Romania and Poland and places like that. They'll have to be supported by larger tanker and reconnaissance and electronic warfare airplanes that, you know, probably will certainly have to be sustained out of Germany, if not actually flown out of Germany. So you're already, and so you're putting the Poles and the Romanians and to some degree, the Germans at risk. If Putin thinks he's going down, you know, he's not going to leave without emptying, you know, you, you know using every round that he's got, even if he doesn't uh, resort to uh, nuclear weapons. And of course, by even suggesting it, he's, you know, <laughs> tested Olaf Schultz, uh, you know, resolve. So it's, it's, you know, and I would say, look, if you're going to get in, you can't like put a toe in. It means that also we need to posture sufficiently powerful forces in Poland and Romania far beyond what we've done so far to, uh, you know, to, to retain some op options should, the Russians, again, even with conventional missiles, uh, start targeting air, the air, you know, if he, can, if he can target airfields in Western Ukraine, he can target airfields in Eastern Poland uh, and from Belarus, which is now in the war. So, and, and unfortunately, more than that, it seems the Belarusians are very much committing to and at least setting conditions for even operations against Poland and Lithuania. Lukashenko has stated very directly that that was why they didn't get involved in the war in Ukraine to date is because they're defending against a quote unquote NATO surprise attack from Poland and Lithuania. And I, I am very worried that in the near future, if we start to see these supplies continuing in, and especially as NATO forces deploy forwards, that 
Belarus could open a new front of operations and this could expand uh, into a wider war. If, as you, as you say, if he really thinks he's going down, Putin's not going to save anything uh, if he thinks he can re- reverse well, the situation. Yeah. I, you know, I tend to think we're still in the point of trying to meet this out in small tablespoons. Um, we should start thinking that maybe, you know, the larger war is already underway and posture ourselves accordingly. If we want it to stop, um, none of the measures that we have taken thus far are certain to stop it. Okay, end of sermon. Dalibor? That's a sufficiently dismal note on which to conclude. And um, yeah, I mean, it strikes me that there is... Um, like such a massive role that 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 we sort of assign to hope that things turn all right. Like in these in these deliberations, we sort of hope that Putin will get stuck in Ukraine and he will no longer think about you know testing NATO's resolve. We uh, or we hope that the deterrent that it already exists in the form of 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 of, of these NATO deployments is sufficient. Um, and you know, like we've been surprised a number of times over the course of these past couple of weeks and 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 and, and months, and, and and so 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 hope is not the substitute for having a plan of action if if really worse come to worst. Right. So I'm hoping that um, the White House, the Hill, European Union, you're listening, you're making plans. Uh, we're trying to make our little contribution. Mason, thank you so much, Mason Clark, um, for joining us to give us a sober and exact assessment of what is happening on the ground. Um, please follow um, Institute for the Study of Wars um, um, uh, summaries um, and reports that they publish more than once a day if you want to have a clear understanding of what is going on. And uh, we will be back uh, soon with uh, more news from the Eastern Front. From my friends, and Giselle Donnelly, and me, Yulia Zoja, thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod in one word. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. We're listening to you as well as you're listening to us. Thank you and goodbye.